Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, Jono. How are you? I am good. I am sad we're coming toward the end of season two, but I'm happy because we have truly one of my favorite magicians of all time on today. This is, by the way, uh, season two, episode 23, aka 223. Uh, we're going to hear chapter 25 of the bullet catch. Don't give me any of your lip about why is it chapter 25 when it's given up. show 23. You are giving up. You've broken me, John. I've broken you. I'm sorry. Let's just dive right into the fact that th- today uh, we're going to chat with the one, the only David Williamson. Yeah, you know, my I, I, certainly, I knew the name before we had a chance to talk with him, but I was unfamiliar really with him as a performer until I started to kind of do the little research that you do before you interview somebody and watched him on YouTube. He, uh, uh, boy, oh boy, do I now think he is one of the greatest magicians I've ever had a chance to watch. And I haven't yeah. even seen the guy live. But let's take the word magician out of there and just say one of the greatest performers. Yeah, I'll uh, buy that. Buy that completely. And you know, he's he comes by it honestly because he's been doing this for for such a long time. But he is so much fun on stage, and the magic is so good, and he's so personable. And he, I will just say that I saw our friend Mike Caveney do a show at the Magic Circle one year, and he had a kid up from the audience, and he did a lot of funny stuff with him, where he's kind of banging him around and doing things. And after the show. I said to him, boy, you're, you're as hard on kids as David Williamson. And he turned to me quite upset and said, I'm not that bad. Because <laughs> Williamson really is, he knows exactly how to, far to go with a kid to keep, you know, keep him on edge and keep him from crying, but still have fun with him. He's just a fantastic performer. There's so much to say about him, but I want to wait and say it after yeah, right. we had a chance no, to listen no to sense. him because... The stuff he says is so fascinating. You know, like many magicians, he started out young in magic, but then he takes a weird left turn uh, because, as we'll hear, it's a compliment from a teacher in fourth grade that put him on the path, believe it or not, to becoming a professional magician. Remember how uh, you first learned magic? What was your what was your entry point? Uh, I think I know exactly what it was. Um our fourth grade teacher, I would have been, what, nine, eight or nine in fourth grade, something like that. We had a little reader about Harry Houdini, and it just captured my imagination. He was an escape artist. He could get out of anything. He did magic. He made elephants disappear. I couldn't wrap my little head around what that meant. And then uh, at the end of that reader was a coin trick, a French drop, a little coin vanish, a little sleight of hand, pretend to take a coin and make it vanish. And for some reason, I practiced it. And I must have done it well because Mrs. Moore said, wow, David, maybe someday you'll be a magician. And that just burnt the neural pathway through my head, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, that's the first time anybody had ever pointed to me and said, you'll be a, because, you know, I was a middle child. Of, you know, I had two brothers, a younger and older. So uh, they both got the attention. So shortly after that, our magician came, Shepherd, Walter Shepard, Shepard the Great. And his posters started appearing in the hallways and there were rabbits and doves and magic wands on the poster. And my you know, imagination was on fire. He's like Houdini. And he came and he did his little assembly show and he, he really was present. He was the, played the part. He had a black goatee and he had a tuxedo. Imagine a nine-year-old kid looking at this and he didn't, 
call them tricks. These were magical things really happening. And he made the color-changing plumes. To this day, I don't know what a plume is. I was in New York City this weekend, and I saw a feather sticking out. I go, finally, a use for the plume, but the horse was wearing it on his head. It's the only one I've seen in real life other than a magic shop. But anyway, he did his great. And Mrs. Moore said, can our little magician David help you carry your things out to your van? His van had birds and hats painted on it. So I was in the club, you know, psychologically, I was like, I was the one allowed to help Shepard. And then he uh, gave me a few little um, pieces of his promo, uh, a business card, a little poster, a little brochure, and a couple little magic tricks. And he taught them to me, you know. So that just was the deeper dive. And then that, my mom saw that and she got me a magic set that year for Christmas. And it just went on from there. And it's the same story with any magician you talk to basically the same magic set when you were a kid or saw a magician and got fascinated. Did you ever um, go back but, and talk to Mrs. Moore and tell her what happened? You know, I never did. Uh, Mrs. Moore saw me through high school uh, being semi-professional in that I was traveling out of state, actually, by the time I hit high school, doing little shows here and there. And I did see her in those high school years. She saw that what she, the seed she planted had fully taken root, you know, in my brain. So she did see that, but beyond that, I don't know. Did you ever have contact with uh, with Shepard the Great? Oh, sure. Walter Shepard, yes. He was well-known in the area. And when I finally figured out at the age of 13, I'm behind the uh, candy counter at uh, in my little town of Xenia, Ohio, doing three-card Monty, hustling candy from the teenage girls who work behind the counter. And uh, this woman is watching me. She said, that's not what magic is for. And she grabbed me by the scruff of the neck took me home, took me to my mother and said, your son belongs in the magic club with us. We drive over to Dayton, you know, which is half an hour drive uh, every, once a month to the ring five IBM international brotherhood. Can we take young 13 year old David with us? My mom's like, take him, take him. Yes. He's driving me crazy with the magic. Club. <laughs> so Walter Shepard was a, a member of ring five with all the other crazy characters and local magicians. We met in the basement of the Catholic church there in Dayton first Friday of every month. And uh, it was just fantastic. I mean, it opened my eyes to the larger society of magicians. I didn't know there were other magicians in Ohio, let alone in Dayton near my town. And, and I was kind of uh, pretty much a feral child about to lead a life of crime. And I think magic and this kindly couple saved me from, from myself and turned my dad, you know, kind of dark intentions towards, you know, channeled it through magic using the same skills of deception and, uh, you know, double talk. My skill set uh, was still intact, but, you know, channeled in a different direction. So you're, you were making money, uh, even as a teenager, you're doing gigs and. I was doing birthday parties. I did like, you know, the, the, senior centers and i uh, worked as a shoe shine boy in the barber shop but i would also do card tricks once i've shined their shoes and the customers that were waiting i sweep up hair and i shine shoes and i do magic tricks and then he let me put my little table on the outside during old-fashioned days in xenia and, and i had a t-shirt made magician for hire with my phone number on it i was a hustler i was a young entrepreneur i was always hustling looking for ways to make some money with magic. And I was able to do that. I don't think anybody ever called my phone number. That was a dumb idea, but that was my mindset all through my teenage years. I was the kid who always was pop up at every event and do have my little table. And I did magic all the time. And then when I was 15, my mom, uh, she worked with a troop of belly dancers because she used to take the belly dance class at the senior center. Right. And uh, this 
woman who ran the troop of belly dancers had a little uh, group of dancers and they would go to these lounges along I-70 outside of Springfield. <laughs> and the truckers was overnight there and they had their, they would dance. It wasn't a hoochie show or anything like that. It was a proper oh. dance, seven veils, but the truckers sure. don't try telling the, try telling the truckers that, you know, <laughs> but they dressed me like a genie and let me go and do magic at the cocktail tables while they're getting their costumes changed. So I had the curly shoes and the puffy sleeves and the little fez. And I was doing magic at the age of 15 with this troop of belly dancers all up and down I-70 between Springfield and Columbus uh, on Thursday nights. And my mom had to go because I was underage. So she's sitting in the bar, you know, people hitting on her. It was crazy. It was the late 70s. And I was, uh, and I still am, but I, I was pathologically shy. I was what you call an introvert. And, but, you know, from the age of 14, 15, it's like, there's a country Western bar in Dayton, mom, you got to take me on Saturday nights so I can get up and do magic because all my magic books, Henry Hay and the amateur magician's handbook says, this is not to be done in your bedroom. It's for other brains to perceive the magic. You got to get out and do it. So I just got in front of crowds. I would do the zombie ball and the billiard balls and whatever trick I would. My grandfather helped me build some wooden props incorrectly. So they never worked and was in talent shows. But I was bitten by the bug at nine years old and it infected me. And I turned to my mother when I was 10. I said, I'm going to be a magician. Leave me alone. She sent me uh, up to Abbott's Magic Convention when I was 12 and thir uh, 13 in 1974 and dropped me off with a pup tent and then drove up to Wisconsin to see her sister. So I walked around and attached myself to Tim Wright, Skildini, and Neil Foster and Malika and all those people and just fell in love with magic and you know, these people have been my friends uh, all these years. That's fantastic. All that, of them. That's just a Dropped delight. off at Abbott's with a pup tent. And, and yeah. she just said, I'll and see our, in a few and days. Tent, see in a few days. And my tent flooded the first night because I didn't know anything about camping. I put it at the bottom of the ravine, you know. And this guy backed his uh, Mercedes Benz. He was a mentalist. That's all I know. Saved the things that were. And then any of the books that I, I bought a lot of books. I didn't have any money, but I bought some books. He replaced all the books, you know, that uh -huh. I had. Uh, lost in the flood and that still sticks with me, with me to this day and speaks to the community of magic and that's when I realized that there's a community that and they it's a fraternal community they look after each other yeah. and they care about each other and I see these people year after year at magic conventions and we watch each other grow older and you know the magic is the glue but it's it's the people that keep me interested in magic and this is you know the subculture and yeah so were you essentially self-taught or once you joined the magic club, did you have a quote unquote teacher? I never had a teacher, but a few of the guys in the club were interested in um, the better kind of sleight of hand. They had better libraries than some of the others and they cared more about that. And they told me about Di Vernon and Ed Marlowe and, you know, Slidini and they had the books. And so they kind of that way, Doc Smith, a local dentist were two dentists. The other one was, um, Doc Katain. And we had lecturers come through and it was like a young Mike Amar and a Daryl and John Carney was the first one I saw. I was 15. John Carney was 18. And he came with a, a, a higher sleight of hand. It was all naturalness. I, you know, he, I call him the high priest in the church of naturalness, right? Because he brought the philosophy of Vernon and Charlie Miller to Dayton, Ohio. I'd never heard uh, anybody talk about the misdirection and naturalness in that way. And then uh, Daryl came and his personality was infectious and he was just so fluid with his movements and uh, his sleight of hand uh, level was so high. 
And th these are the guys that they were kind of just within th stone's throw of my age. They were the kind of, the, and these, and Paul Gertner I met when I was young and Darwin Ortiz came and, and you know who else used to come through because Dayton is right there at the uh, intersection of I-70 and I-75. Del Rey, who never flew to any gigs, he's from Pittsburgh. So he had a lot of things in Chicago and Nashville. And so he would go, drive through the Midwest and he would come through Dayton often. And I think it was three or four times he stopped at our magic club as I was growing up in my teenage years and would just sit with us and go to dinner with us. So Del Rey was a huge influence on me. I couldn't get enough of him. He was a larger than life character that did magic unlike anybody else, you know. Wow. That's uh, that's some great company you're keeping there. Yeah, I mean, I did. I, I love these old men. Uh, Goshman, uh, Carol Fox, uh, Jay Marshall were my crazy uncles, I called them, you know. And uh, I would just be that sucker fish that on the side of a great white shark, you know. And I would always just follow these, attach myself to these guys at Magic Conventions and slip into the presidential suite when a party was going on or stand in the hallway outside of their dealer's room. And I'd hear Goshman go, get me a Coke. He didn't know my name. He knew I was the skinny kid who was always hanging around him. And I'd tell Paul Diamond, I want to see him. And I'd go get Paul, Di Mr. Diamond, what do you want? Kenny, you're going to buy something. Yell at me, you know. <laughs> Mr. Goshman said, Mr. Goshman, tell that slob to come down here if he wants to see me. I'm not walking down the hall to see you know, and these were the guys who I just loved and I couldn't believe because once you, I always wanted to be a 60 year old man because it's like these guys didn't care. They didn't, gave up, they don't care how they dressed. They're in a casino at, you know, in their uh, pajamas at three in the morning, you know, cussing at people. It's like, I want to be that guy. <laughs> they break all the rules. They don't care anymore. Uh, they, you know, I just loved them. No matter how much they verbally and mentally tortured me or abused me, I kept coming back. And they were like, this kid's okay. <laughs> Those are some great teachers. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it wasn't just the techniques or the magic. It was their personalities. It was their characters. They were larger than life. You know, they were just, and they were all, they were all giving. You know, you could tell there was a heart of gold under that gruff exterior. Uh, I was just drawn to people like that. Eddie Fector, I used to go up to Fector's when I was young. Big tattooed, you know, buzz haircut. Uh, looked like he could break in half, but he was such a gentle person, you know, and so and his sleight of hand was so lovely to watch. So it was the contrast, you know. Yeah, yeah. I love all of it. So uh, the, uh, let, let's just talk for a minute about making the transition from being a, a, a magician to uh, being a teacher or a coach or a, a mentor yourself now. Uh, to younger magicians. How did that happen? From an early age, Mike Amar kind of influenced a lot of, uh, we were teenagers together and we became fast friends and his dad owned a hotel down in Jekyll Isle, Georgia. So I would spend my summers with Michael down at the hotel and we would table hop and come up with magic and stuff like that. So I was kind of uh, good friends of, with Michael in my uh, later teenage years. And he was hitting the lecture trail. He would put together notes and books and go out. I saw him making money going to magic clubs and selling his wares, you know, because when I was coming up, when I was 12 and 13 in the magic club and 14, the lecturers were local were pros who happened to be passing through town. Very few people back in the seventies made a living out of lecturing for magic clubs, right? Anyway, some of the pros who were passing through, they'd stop and they might have some mimeograph lecture notes or something like that. But there wasn't a lot of money to be made in it. But Michael took his business school acumen and actually turned that into a lucrative uh, revenue stream. And his, he and Daryl both, he influenced Daryl as well. And their mantra became price per pound per square inch. That was the mantra. 
everything's flat, cards, silk, rope, uh, instructions, you know, so they can carry suitcases full of product and they're not selling bulky things that take up a lot of space or weigh a lot. So it was interesting. Michael would forge these uh, paths. He would go on these lecture tours and they say, who else can we get? And they go, well, Daryl, who else? Well, there's a kid named David Williamson in Xenia. So I lectured all over um, Europe when I was 21 because Michael recommended me. And this young German magician said, I've never heard of you, but I like the striking vanish uh, that Michael showed me. Why don't you come over? And I did a 30 city, uh, city tour of uh, Europe wow. uh, when I was very young. And I met all kinds of great people over there. And that kind of opened me up to the international crowd and FISM and some of the international conventions and to this day, I'm good friends with Roberto Joby, who I met on that first tour, and Flip from Holland, and uh, guys from England. Uh, but anyway, so thanks to Michael, uh, I kind of got the bug to lecture, and I got good at lecturing. I did, uh, I did too many, I will say this. I didn't want, I saw, I perceived a path. Let me put it this way. I perceived a path, making money from magicians or making money from real people. I never, and to this day, I still don't, want to make my living from magicians, right? And put all my eggs in that basket. It was a nice secondary revenue stream when shows were low or you can't get the career going yet. It's a nice way to pay your rent and get, you know, but I didn't see it as the end result. The end result for me was to be on stage, to be out there doing magic for the public, for real people. And, you know, you get burnt out with the lectures after a while. The lecture became a show in itself. And then you sell your wares and teach your tricks. But it, my heart was never really in it. I enjoyed the lectures. It was fun meeting other magicians and so forth. And you make a little money. Long story short, I stopped lecturing after a while. I got busy with my career. I started performing and traveling a lot. And I just kind of gave up with the lecturing. And then COVID hits. Past seven years, Bill Kalush of the Arts Research Center, the nonprofit in New York, past seven or eight years, he's put on an online university, Conjuring Arts University. And he's had people like Eric Mead and Jason England and Nasi Wynn and Michael Weber and people like that teach online courses for him. And he's, Willie, when are you going to teach? I want you to do a segment. I want you to teach a online. I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't, I'm not a teacher of magic. I, 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 here's my idea of teaching somebody magic. Hand them a copy of Amateur Magician's Handbook and call me in 20 years. There's your first lesson. <laughs> you know, that, that was my attitude, really. It's like, because over the years, people said, do you take on students? Are you, oh, I'm not a teacher. I just do it, you know. Uh, I don't want to be a teacher. I lectured. That's one thing. But being actually a coach or a teacher or something, I never wanted to do that. COVID hit. Kalush calls me. He goes, I know you're sitting at home. I know you're not doing anything. You're doing it this year. And uh, he said, you're doing it. I said, all right. So I set up my little camera and I got on uh, his little university and I had 15 students in my class. And after that first hour, I was hooked. These guys were from all over the world but they were at all different levels, but they all had the same thing, a love of magic, especially close-up magic. And they were all well-versed already in the literature and the uh, plots and so forth. But I found that by talking to them, my juices started flowing again. Then the creativity came out. I go, you don't want an Elmsley count. Let's start from scratch, guys. That's the Elmsley count, you know, is supposed to be, there's a theory behind it. Just, I think, and, oh, wait a minute. Uh, let's not do that. Let's do, have, let's try it like this. Let's figure out a different story. Forget the instructions, a game of that trick. What if it were, and it was really fun again. It was like, you know, when you sit with your friends and you're jamming. But I felt like by the end of that five-week course, uh, I didn't want to stop. I was making notes. I was making blog posts for these guys. I was opening up my dusty library and doing research and being prepared for the next week based on what happened the previous week. 
and I and I learned a lot, you know, myself. You know, I think teaching is learning, and I really got hooked on that, and the camaraderie and the shared, you know, we. I think we had some breakthroughs with some of the guys, and I realized that my experience out there performing for the past, you know, four decades or whatever, I've learned a couple things about audiences care about and what they don't care about and what magicians care about and don't care about and the difference between being an amateur doing tricks for your friends and being professional doing tricks for strangers. You know, the amateur does hundreds of tricks for the same small group. The professional does small set of tricks for hundreds, you know, thousands of different people. So, you know, you can be a professional magician and know five tricks, but you can't be an amateur and know five tricks because your friends and colleagues want to see more, you know, it's not your hobby. So you're constantly going through material. Uh, it's a whole different animal. So realizing those two different aspects of people involved in magic, you know, and how, you know, what, what can we learn from each other? I've learned plenty from these amateur enthusiasts, amateur in the best sense of the word. Uh, they just, they're not crazy enough to try to do it for a living, but they're intelligent people. They care, they're studious, they're skillful. And I meet them on all different levels, you know, and the people I've taken on as students uh, since then, I, as I was saying, I, after that class ended, I hung up my shingle. I said, okay, I'm not taking students. Uh, Zoom is here. I figured out the technology. I'm sitting at home. And they started coming and they started coming. And I have guys now, we've just done our 99th consecutive week. And, uh, you know, I've had over 250 different students. That means thousands of different lessons uh, I've given over the past two years. Then I officially made it a slight school, I called it. I opened a new entity called Slight School. Uh, it's a membership site. And now we learn from each other. There's a forum. We get together once a week with different topics. So it's kind of expanding and growing. But I still, just before I was with you, I was with uh, one of my longtime students, and he's a retired executive from Harvard University. And he's been a longtime lover of magic, but he was one of those guys that sits at the back of the room during a lecture, and he's a little too intimidated to go, what's, what's the, that bottom deal again? Or how do you do the Jordan count? You know, but now he's got somebody to pay attention to him for one full hour. And let's, let's go over it. Because when you're with your friends and your comrades in magic, they go, that was great. Let me show you what I'm working on. And it's all about watch they'll, they'll wait through your trick while, because they're just waiting to do theirs for you. You know, there's no real sharing of information all the time. And also they're not always honest with you. Oh, that, they don't want to hurt your feelings. Somebody's going to pay me some money for an hour of my time. I'm going to be perfectly honest. That's no good. That won't fly. Let's try something better. You can't do that because you haven't mastered that technique. Let's try a different technique or Wait till you master it, and then we'll revisit that, you know. And nobody talks to them that way. Their wife won't, their kids won't, their friends at the Magic Club won't. So it's very valuable. And I've learned the value of having a director when I did the Illusionist tour. The director of the Illusionist, a big multi-million dollar production show, traveling all over the world. The director doesn't do magic. He doesn't even like magic. He just wants to make your time on stage watchable and interesting to the audience. And it was all the little things. What do you do while they're shuffling cards? What do you say while they're coming up on the stage? What do you, how do you get into that faster? How do you kill that dead time? Where's the opportunities for connecting tissue to connecting back to whatever theme or premise you are? That's where the showbiz lives in between the trick. You know, a trick is usually when you start out in magic, it's um, execution with narration. I'm now going to take these two cards. I'm going to put this one here. I'm going to put that one there. I'm going to ask you to pick a card. I'm going to ask, it's administration. It's narration. It's I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. 
there's no entertainment value there. There's no story being told. There's no premise being supported. It's all admin, I call it, you know, when you're starting out. Then over time, you learn there's opportunities while he's shuffling for showbiz, for entertainment. There's opportunities while he's, you know, uh, for me to move a table over here, but to make that moving the table funny and interesting and link back to something that happened earlier. So now we talk about things like linkage and callbacks and the narrative arc and having a button at the end, you ask a question at the beginning that's answered by the end, supported by di- your, supporting your premise with different tent poles. We talk about structure of uh, routines, but also structure of an act and an entire show, things like that. You know, I knew you were going to be a great teacher when I saw you on stage at Magi Fest. I think you had been asked to do a lecture and you said, I don't want to do a lecture, but I'm just going to do what Carney does. I'm just going to bring one of you guys up on stage and have you do something and I'll just talk you through it. <laughs> And there's, I don't know, 600 magicians there. And you said, who wants to come up? And no hands are going up. And one kid, you know, probably in his late teens in the front row, raised hand and came up. And it was, uh, you know, a hysterical was very funny. He was a really good sport. But it was sort of a masterclass of why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? No, don't. No, no. And, And you'd made him do stuff again and again. And it was funny, but it was really instructive about make sure every single moment is there for a reason. No, that was, yeah, that that was uh, inspired by Carney. You're absolutely right. Who does, when he does a lecture, it's not one way. It's like, well, what are you working on? How can we, guys, let's all, what, what ideas, you know, you never said, John's always iterating, always changing, never satisfied. And that's what's inspiring about John. But I've done that a lot since then. I was in Ireland and this young man came up and I go, do a trick and let's see if we can work through this workshop, this. And he goes, uh, er, um, uh, I go, so how do you spell that? Air? Um, uh, that gesture again, I go, let's try something more provocative. So I made him walk out through the curtain until he could get that right. The audience was cheering. And then we're into the trick. You know, it was, he was so charming. It brought out his personality, giving him these directions and making him do it. And they had him come on stage that night to do that trick again. And he had more poise, more professionalism than anybody else on the act who was kind of phoning in their hacky tricks all night long. And here comes this young man, ladies and gentlemen, lend me your ears as we pull forward an idea that's uh, evocative and whatever it was that we wrote for him. And he's having the deck of cards shuffle while he's saying ridiculous things. My grandmother was ravaged by wolves, but that did not stop me from seeking the truth. No, you know, and it was just ridiculous, but it was a hilarious performance piece. And it just goes to show you, you know, there's so much potential to be more interesting than what you did with that magic trick. Magicians want to be like other magicians. So we see Fred Caps or Slidini and we become Fred Caps or we become Slidini. That's the first stage of learning magic. You try to emulate your heroes, right? But then hopefully over time you find your own voice and you are given permission to not to actually be yourself. And that's what you know, it's really hard. They always say, be yourself. What does that mean? And I get this question a lot, like, how do you choose a character? I go, I don't think you choose a character. I think character chooses you. It's not like you go into a department store and pick one off the shelf, like you do a suit or something like that. Be the most appealing version of you that you can be at that moment, right? Don't, don't try to be something you're not. If you're not a natural born comedian, don't try to be funny with props and jokes. And it's just going to fit like a bad suit. Likewise, if you're a goofball like I am, you know, trying to be mysterious and uh, evocative, uh, emotional, doesn't always work. One of the things, you know, you kind of ask what I'm, you know, what I've learned from teaching. And I think it's all about clarity is the word that keeps coming forward that I use a lot, like clarity of effect. What are we trying to communicate here? But clarity of story, 
What story are you telling? What are you trying to, let's make it more clear though. There's too much clutter. There's too many things you're trying to be. You're trying to be funny. You're trying to be interesting. You're trying to be a storyteller, but you're also trying to be a magician and you're trying to explain something like an engineer or something. Let's get clarity of effect, clarity of story and anything that's unnecessary and doesn't serve us. Let's try to get rid of and get to what the essence of what this performance piece is because it is a performance piece and let's make it interesting. Talk to us a little bit about um, what you think might be the biggest mistake or let's, how about misconception? that um, someone who's just getting into magic, a beginning uh, magician might have. uh, Right. I feel more strongly uh, now than ever that it's not what you do. It's how you do it. uh, Right. So these guys think they need the next book, the next trick, the next download, uh, and then they'll make it. And then that's what's going to set them apart. And that's when they're finally going to get off of the plateau they're on or get, be able to get that gig or, you know, press that person. And I contend, if you've been in magic a few years already, you already have everything you need. Now you need to unlock all the dogma uh, and and shed all the bad habits you've learned and free yourself and give yourself permission to be interesting with what you already do. And let's take what you already do and make that more interesting. And let's make it bigger. Let's scale it. Let's make it more fun. Let's find moments. Has nothing to do with the, the trick. Most of the tricks have a solid foundation. They come already with the beginning, middle, and end. They come engineered with some secret that's you know mechanical or psychological or whatever subtlety that makes the trick work. There's a thing, there's a gimmick, and it's got its own little narrative. Okay, let's take that, kind of take it apart and re-engineer it. Let's make it bigger, more fun. Let's change the story around it. If we have to make the prop bigger, we will. Let's spread it out. Let's make us, uh, you know, and let's make it fit you. Let's write something that would actually come out of your mouth. And then let's make it interesting to people. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything, David, in magic that you think, you know, we should probably go away from that. Let's retire that. We've done that. Yeah. My act. (laughs) I mean, in a way, it's true. I mean, you know, the comedy magic actors do this. You did it wrong. You know what I mean? It's like a tired old uh, beats. It's uh. I think that can be elevated beyond that. And I'm, I'm attempting to myself, but it's hard, you know, because those are the models that we have, you know, do this thing. You did it wrong. Uh, you're the butt of the joke. And as John Carney, I know you said that that kid was a good sport at the Magi Fest. John Carney told me when I was young, he goes, if you have to say somebody's a good sport, that means you've mistreated them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, let's hear it for Bob. Well, what you a good sport? That all oh, you're just admitting that you mistreated that person on stage. And I did 10 years of a Disney Cruise Line and I changed my attitude about having people on stage and just using them as comedy props, you know, comedy, comic foils. I think it's still possible to evoke comic moments but in order to build these people up, you know what I mean? Uh, especially a child to raise their self-esteem and to build them up and adults. Cause an adult is a child inside. All of us have the child still inside of us. So I think the whole goal is let's whoever we invite up on stage, let's, let's celebrate them. Let's be as authentic as we can with them and not be phony and, and raise them up. I think, yeah. um, Way back when, when I was uh, working with G- Eugene Berger, he mm, had wow. making making the audience member the star of your show. 
rather than uh, the um, sort of. Well, that's exactly right. I learned that when I did, I did almost uh, 30 years of corporate entertaining was my main bread and butter before I started with these production shows like the illusionist and the circus and uh, Disney cruise line and all that. The whole idea is to make the people on stage, the star of the show that I'm the quote unquote ringmaster, but they are the act. You know, it's about them. It's about them celebrating them, having their having fun with them, evoking comic moments through them. But at the end of the trick, you, it's like, wasn't Sally great? Wasn't Bob great? Not wasn't David great? Of course, in the corporate entertaining, I learned that the ultimate goal is to make the person who hired me a star. <laughs> That's the goal. That's how you keep getting work. That's the real secret of doing magic. It's you stand next to Shelly from uh, who who put together this, and when people come over to you and go, "You were great," it's like I wasn't great. Shelly hired me. She's the genius. She put this whole evening together. Thanks, Shelly. You know she's the star of this show, and Shelly feels great, and she'll have you back. So that's a little tip for all the magicians out there. If you have to say that somebody was a good sport. You've mistreated them. How? Uh, what a! I mean, how great is that? Uh, yes. And and really, the, the crux of the biscuit for me because you do see a lot of people call. That's why nobody raises their hand when the magician says, "Who'd like to come up and help me?" Nobody wants to come up because they know they're just going to be made into some sort of schmuck up there. That the magician. But that's just a great quote. I thought. Yes, it's it's Carney being. Both kind and direct. <laughs> but, you know, there's so much uh, that we can go into here. And we're not, we, we do have a book to listen to at some point. So I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes. But uh, his whole idea of making the client the star is something I've seen you do for years and years. It's uh, We've talked about Mike Super doing the same thing. Uh, right. It's It's just... It's such a smart way to work as a professional performer. Yeah, I I really think if you can be, I can't not be real about it. If, if I don't feel that, you know, I understand why it would be a good thing to do to say, you know, hey, if you liked it, don't talk to me. Talk to Sally because she booked me. I get why that's a good idea inherently. I'm unable to do it if it's if I don't feel that genuinely. I mean, if, if, if I don't have, I can't fake that. That's gotta be, it's gotta be real. If you don't uh, like Sally, if, if Sally didn't, well, what, what, what if, problem do you have with Sally? I don't understand. No, Sally is great. Is uh, she? But you know what I mean? If, if it's if that, if you can be genuine about that, if you can honestly say, Hey, I'm glad you enjoyed the show. I got to thank Sally for having me because she's the one that reached out to me and thought I would be a good fit for you. So she's, She's the one that you should be, you know, I'm happy to have been here, but she's terrific because she, she put this all together. And that, if I can do that genuinely, and I can most times do it mm -hmm. genuinely, then yes, I get that completely. Yes. Unless it's a situation uh, where you and I were at least once where the person who booked you was having such a horrible evening that she was backstage with two drinks in her hands, just slamming them. Uh, it wasn't your fault. It was just... Nope. It was, it, let's be clear, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> it was just the nature of that evening. But, yeah, you know, yeah. they come, they go. Anyway, David Williamson referring to himself as a as a feral child. Fantastic who, who was saved by magic. And you can really see that uh, in talking to him, that uh, he, at age seven or eight, I bet he was really a handful. And then the idea that his mother... <laughs> Drops him off at Abbott's, gives him a pup tent and says, I'll see you Sunday night. And he's just there. 
Yeah. Different but, times. Different yeah, times. Say, different time. And and one of the other things that's you know struck me when we talked to him was he sort of is the link between a generation of magic that has passed away, mm-hmm. uh literally passed away. Mm-hmm. And David knew those guys from mm-hmm. the generation that we sort of looked back at and said, Oh, that's that's the golden age right there. Right. So he's he is a conduit from that age to the current. And that's cool to me to be able to talk to somebody who knew those guys that we sort of put up on a pedestal and idolize. Yeah, it's it's fun to, to chat with these people who t- can talk about that generation that I, I remember reading about when I first started doing research going, these guys were amazing. Yeah, um, uh, shockingly good. And uh, to have somebody who, I don't know if you, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole now, even though you just said we can't go down a rabbit hole. Go ahead, but- go ahead. Uh, when John Wayne started in the business of filmmaking, he started as a prop runner. That's how he got into it. He had hurt, hurt his shoulder playing football at USC and couldn't play football anymore. So he became a prop runner at one of the studios and, and was working on a John Ford picture. And And John Wayne said, Harry Carey, not Harry Carey Jr., but Harry Carey is an actor that he sort of patterned many of his things after. And Harry Carey, in turn, patterned much of what he did after Wyatt Earp. So in a, in a way, you're, when you see John Wayne on screen, you get an echo, at least, of what Wyatt Earp may have been like hmm. had you had a chance to meet him. And that kind of stuff is absolutely riveting to me, that there, that, that conduit exists. And Williamson is the same deal. He's got some of that knowledge and has saw those people perform and and maybe, you know, so that kind of stuff I'm, I'm absolutely delighted by. Yeah. He's so much fun. We need to have him back uh, next season in the show notes. We have a little bonus video that a thing I asked him to do. It's a story that he told once that I think is so funny. Uh, And so he's willing to tell that story. You can click on that. It'll take you to YouTube page. It's uh, how he used his mother to prank Bill Kalush. Uh, It's a classic story. Uh, Give that a listen. And, you know, while you're on that YouTube page, you ought to check out some of the other bonus videos from past episodes uh past guests talking about their experiences on Penn and Teller's Fool Us, uh John Lubbock Kayla Drescher our pal Noah as yeah. a good John Armstrong I mean there's some great stuff in that on that YouTube channel Yes. And while you're there, you can also look at some of the low budget features I've done over the years, like Ghost Light and Beyond Bobber there. And and if you're a Jim Cunningham fan, and I think you probably are if you're listening to this show. Well, I know I am. You can see him in the features Grown Men and the Cookie Project. But before you go off to that YouTube page, uh, let's jump into this episode's chapter of The Bullet Catch. Ooh, thank God you did that. Uh, this is chapter 24. Five, I think, if I'm done the math correctly. You have done the math correctly, yes. Bring us up to date, because I don't even remember what the last thing, (laughs) we must have heard chapter 24 last, but I don't remember how it all laid out. Last episode, we listened to chapters 23 and 24. That was where we had Max's funeral, Eli goes to Trisha's apartment, and the ended with all of a sudden finding out that Trisha's dead husband, Dylan, was not as dead as we thought he was. And that takes us right into chapter 25. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. 
chapter 25. Trish was on her feet in an instant, and she was surprisingly angry. For God's sake, Dylan, he wasn't a loose end until you stepped out of the bedroom. You just made him a loose end. Every time I think you've been as stupid as a person can possibly be, you find a way to go ahead and top yourself. But, Dylan said, he had it figured out. He had most of it figured out. Yes, and he wasn't going to do anything with that information because he thought it would make my life worse if the truth came out. Were you listening at all to what was going on out here? Some. Most. I heard most of some of it, he mumbled. It was absolutely Dylan, but I'm not sure if I would have recognized him if I'd bumped into him on the street. I guess that was the idea. He sported a shaggy brown beard, and his previously blonde hair was now a mousy brown. But it was clearly Dylan, as evidenced by the macho swagger and the insolent attitude that had been his trademark. Perfect, Trish snapped. She turned sharply and headed back to the kitchen. She set her wine glass on the counter with so much force I was surprised it didn't break. Just perfect. We're a half hour away from hopping on a plane, and you have to take care of one more of your idiotic loose ends. But he figured it out, Dylan repeated. And what about Howard Washburn? He didn't figure it out, but that didn't stop you from shooting him. He could have figured it out. Oh, nonsense. Howard Washburn couldn't figure out a three-piece jigsaw puzzle, and I suppose you thought Sylvia was going to figure it out as well. Well, once she saw me, she instantly figured it out. And why did she see you? Dylan lowered his head. Because you went to her house, Trish answered for him. And why did you go to her house? Again, Dylan was silent, although just the slightest hint of a grin started to break through. One more for the road. How was it you put it? One more for old time's sake. He gave this response his best aw shucks charm, but it was evident Trish wasn't buying it. Idiot. Complete idiot. She looked at me, and I was sort of surprised she remembered I was still in the room. Eli, what did the police call Dylan's death? My mind was whirling, but somehow I was able to pull an answer out of the maelstrom in my head. A mugging that didn't look like a mugging, I said. And they would have left it at that, she said, moving back toward Dylan. With such ferocity, he took two awkward steps backward. And keep in mind, this was a guy with a gun in his hand. But then, she continued, you had to add a suicide that didn't look like a suicide and a drowning that didn't look like a drowning. She got up in his face for a long moment, then shook her head and walked away again. Idiot, she mumbled. There was a long, tense pause. I don't know why I did it, but I decided to add my two cents to the discussion. My Uncle Harry has a saying, I said quietly. They both turned and looked at me, probably surprised I was entering into the fray. He says it to magicians all the time, particularly ones who try to hide things the audience isn't even looking for. This is the expression, don't run if no one is chasing you. I let the words hang in the air. But I didn't run, Dylan began, but Trish cut him off sharply. You were dead. The police were buying it. 
or they were buying it enough. You didn't need to kill anyone else. Oh, he said quietly, apparently beginning to understand. I looked at them in an apparent standoff, and then something dawned on me. It occurred to me it was in my best interest to get out of that apartment as quickly as possible. So, I said, repositioning myself on a couch that provided about as much stability as an underfilled waterbed. You two are getting on a plane? That was the plan, Trish said. The insurance money has come through so we can pay back Dylan's, um, employer. Mr. Lime? Trish couldn't hide a grimace. I believe we're talking about the same person. We don't say his actual name around here, so sure, we can call him Mr. Lime. Why did Dylan owe him money? I knew it wasn't really my business, but I wanted to get all of the elements of the story before whatever was going to happen, happened. That's a good question. Why did you owe him money? Trish asked, turning to Dylan. He glared at her but didn't answer, so Trish turned back to me. Gambling. Gambling with a psychopath's money. I don't recommend it. She ran a quick hand through her hair and scanned the apartment. So now we're in a position to get him off our backs for good, leaving us free and clear, Trish said. Well, I'd hate for you to miss your plane on my account, I said, trying to get up out of the couch as casually as possible. The couch was not providing any help in my effort. You probably have more packing to do, so I'll just skedaddle and get out of your way. I was pretty sure I'd never used the word skedaddle before in my life, but was hoping I might still have many opportunities to use it in the future, if I had one. I'm sorry, Eli, but that's not going to work. Trish said, and then she gave me a hard look. First, explain to me why you're involved in all this, she asked, sounding more than a little annoyed. Me? Yes, you. I was trying to help you, I said lamely. Really? You were trying to help me? Her voice had taken on a scary, cold edge. At what point did I ask for your help? I thought back over our various conversations. I shook my head. You didn't. No, I didn't. She turned back toward the kitchen island, grabbed the wine bottle, and added more wine to her glass. Jesus, it never ends with you guys, does it? All through high school, it's Trish, can I help you with this? And Trish, can I help you with that? If I wanted your help, believe me, I would have asked for it. But you kept talking to me about it, I protested. You called me and had coffee with me and asked me to go with you to the police station. I was having a little trouble grasping her sudden anger with me, of all people. Think it through, Eli. Your ex-wife is with the DA's office. I was looking for information. That should be clear by now. She took another sip of wine, shaking her head in disgust. What is it with you guys when you're face-to-face -face with a pretty woman? Trust me, every encounter with an attractive woman is not a come-on. He was coming on to you? Dylan sounded more surprised than angry. No more than everyone else, she said. Now we just need to figure out what to do with him. She threw a look at Dylan, who snapped to attention and turned the gun in my direction. 
Trish, I don't need to tell anyone anything about what we've discussed here tonight, I began, aiming for a casual attitude and falling short. Trish cut me off. No, Eli, we can't take that chance. You weren't a loose end until my brilliant husband walked into the room, but you're clearly a liability now, and one that needs to be disposed of. I could shoot him, Dylan suggested. I could shoot him right now. The police come. You tell them he broke in and was going to attack you. Self-defense. They buy that. They buy that in a minute. No, they wouldn't, Trish scoffed. I mean, look at him. I believe she had meant it as a rhetorical command, but that didn't stop Dylan from giving me the serious once-over. Oh, yeah, he said when he finished his assessment. I see what you mean. Hang on. I started, but Trish was already on to the next idea. They wouldn't believe he had come to attack me, she said as she crossed the room, but they might believe he came over to chat and had one of his attacks and jumped off the terrace. She opened the curtains that covered the sliding glass doors to their balcony. Dylan was nodding along with her as she spoke. That's right, he's got that thing. That heights panic thing, that would work. What? I looked from Dylan to Trish. You told him about my panic attacks? I looked at Trish, genuinely hurt. I'm sure she could see it in my face. Sorry about that, but you know, there's hardly ever any secrets between a wife and her husband. Even a dead husband, I muttered. Trish slid open the balcony doors and then continued to move through the room, opening all the drapes revealing the expansive and expensive view from the 29th floor. Yes, I think I can sell this. It has a ring of plausibility. Despite the situation, I couldn't help but look out the windows. In fact, my field of vision had narrowed and the windows were really all I could see. I couldn't see the ground directly below, but the view of the top of the Calhoun Beach Manor across the street and the street wending its way around Lake Calhoun told my unconscious all it needed to know. I was up high, up way high, with an open door right in front of me. I tried to slip into Dr. Bakke's breathing lessons, but his words of instruction had flown out of my head. A weakness started to settle into my knees, and although I was pretty sure I was breathing, my lungs were starting to become convinced no actual oxygen was entering my body. I made a quick inventory of what I had in my pockets, in the hope that I was carrying something that could be fashioned into an impromptu weapon. A deck of cards, a couple trick coins, my car keys, my wallet, my phone, and some invisible wiffle dust. Perfect. I heard Dylan speak. How do you want to do this? Trish responded from somewhere behind me. How do you think? Get him out on the balcony and throw him over the railing. I tried to find some amusement in their continued squabbling, but at the moment my mind and body were occupied with more important issues. I started to back away, not heading toward anything in particular, but instead trying to put some distance between myself and the French doors to the balcony. Not so fast, magic man, I heard Dylan say. You're headed the wrong way. 
go out onto the balcony. It came out as a whisper, but it was loud enough for them to hear it. I'm sure it surprised them as much as it surprised me. No. What? I'm not going out there. I can't go out there. I realized I was talking to myself as much as them, but I didn't have the energy to stop and explain this. In the back of my mind, I heard Dr. Baki's voice, and what he had said earlier finally made sense. Sometimes our greatest weakness is actually our greatest strength. I had a sudden realization. My intense, shattering fear of that balcony was the strongest weapon I had to keep myself from being thrown off of it. I felt a sudden jab in the middle of my back as Dylan prodded me with the gun. Move, he said, sounding like the tough guy he had always pretended to be. He shoved me with his free hand, propelling me several feet closer to the windows and the open door. This new vantage point gave me a bird's-eye view of the ground 29 stories below. I felt my stomach tighten and the spinning in my head ramped up from 33 to 78 RPM. For a moment, I was sure I was about to pass out, but then I realized passing out would likely be only a short-term solution and not a good one at that. I felt Dylan's hand on my back pushing me forward toward the opening. I placed a hand on either side of the doorframe and pushed back. The sweat that had formed on my brow started to trickle down into my eyes. Without an available hand to wipe it away, I resorted to squinting and shaking my head. I positioned my feet against the doorframe as well, and for a moment I knew exactly how a recalcitrant cat feels when you try to push it into a pet carrier. I could see the railing ahead of me, and it looked surprisingly low, making me wonder for an odd instant if it was below code. The sweat cleared out of my eyes for a second, and I got a sudden view of the street below. The perverse imp in my brain was suggesting, in the strongest possible terms, that jumping over the railing was in my best interests, and the pressure Dylan was applying to my back was simply an agreeable chorus to the voice in my head. I suddenly realized it was as if the perverse voice had suddenly manifested itself into a 200-pound brute who was doing his best to get me out onto the balcony and over the railing. How about if I just shoot him and then throw him over the railing? Dylan huffed behind me. Brilliant, Trish said. So I tell the police he shot himself and then jumped over the railing? I don't think they're going to buy that. She reached out her hand toward him. Give me the gun so you can use both hands. Dylan relaxed his efforts for a second to hand off the gun, allowing me to grab a quick breath. I barely inhaled when he pushed against me again. I dug my nails into the door frame. I may have begun to whimper. Eli, Trish said, her face very near mine. It will be over in a second, trust me. And deep down, don't you really want to jump? I mean, deep down... Isn't that what your mind is telling you to do? I turned and stared at her. What happened to you? I asked, my voice sounding surprisingly hoarse. You used to be so nice. I'm the same girl I've always been, Eli. You just never took the time to really look, to really see me. I see you now, I whispered.
She looked into my eyes, and I looked into hers, and for just a second, I could see the fury. I saw the anger and the selfishness, and for the first time ever, she wasn't in the least bit pretty or attractive. Yes, she said, I believe you do. The sweat was running down my face. My arms were aching and my legs were about to buckle. I looked back at the tempting railing in the street below. I looked at her smiling face and I started to feel tired. So tired. And then I saw the gun in her hand. And a small voice in the back of my head started to sing, getting louder and louder. Everybody run, I sang quietly remembering Julie Brown's novelty song from the 80s. The homecoming queen's got a gun. For some reason, this immediately made me feel a tiny bit better. And I remembered being in the elevator at the hotel and the strange power singing had offered. I kept singing in a hoarse whisper, but switched to a more upbeat number. What's he singing? Dylan grunted as he stepped back and then smashed into my back. I gasped for a second and then returned to singing. Jingle bells, Trish said with a derisive tone. It would be weird to kill someone while they're singing jingle bells, Dylan said. Make him stop. This is ridiculous, Trish hissed, handing Dylan the gun again. Just knock him out. The head injury will get lost in the shuffle after you throw him over the railing. I was halfway through the first verse headed toward the chorus, using what little strength I had to keep my body on this side of the doorframe. I turned just in time to see Dylan swinging the butt of the gun with great speed and force right toward my forehead. Then I heard a gunshot, and a moment later, everything went black. So this is what it's like to be dead, I thought to myself. I had been swallowed into an inky blackness and was just settling into it, luxuriating in the warmth and the calm when I was abruptly blinded by a white light. Frankly, I was surprised, annoyed by the brightness of the light, sure, but also surprised. I had never counted on an afterlife, so I was happy to discover that apparently you didn't have to believe to ultimately benefit. What's his name? An unfamiliar voice said somewhere off in the distance. Eli was the answer. There was something recognizable about that voice. Eli, can you hear me? I said in reply, and then thought I should qualify that. I added, for good measure. I think he's starting to come around. I didn't know what I was coming around to or where it was, but I did know the blinding light was adding to a massive headache that started in the back of my head and traveled all the way down to my toes. I was suddenly glad I wasn't taller because I figured it would have hurt even more. That's the way my brain was working. Eli, do you know where you are? The white light mercifully moved away from my eyes, leaving a white trail as it did. The darkness that had enveloped me had morphed into a muddy gray, with tiny spots of white light still burning into my brain. My head hurts, I managed to say although the words sounded distant and echoed in my head. I would imagine it does. You got conked pretty hard. Didn't break the skin, though, but you're going to have a heck of a bump. The murky gray faded away and was replaced with a young Asian man who was smiling at me 
just inches from my face. Let's check those retinas once more, he said, again shining the white light directly into my eyes. Must we? I moaned quietly. There we go, he said, giving each of my eyes a quick flash with the light. That's looking closer to normal. I think you're going to be okay. Can you tell that to my brain? I mumbled. It's offering a dissenting opinion. The haze that was the sum total of my field of vision started to clear, and I realized I was still in Trisha's apartment. Somehow, I had gotten to the couch, which, as it had done before, was enveloping me deep into the heart of its cavernous cushions. Another face appeared in my line of vision, and it took at least three seconds for me to place him. Homicide Detective Fred Hutton I don't think I've ever seen your face this close up, was all I could think to say. It's sort of weird. It's no picnic on my end, he responded. How are you feeling? Like Pele just scored a goal with my head. I squinted, which might have been a mistake, and then I tried to sit up. As before, the couch fought me at every turn. Take it easy, he said, grabbing my arm and helping me to sit up straight. We're in no hurry here. The show's all over. I slowly took in the room. Trish and Dylan were gone, and in their place were police, both the plainclothes and uniform variety. They were snapping photos, dusting for prints, looking through drawers and cupboards. What happened? I looked back at homicide detective Fred Hutton. I might have been mistaken, but I think I noticed a look of concern on his face. It vanished as quickly as it had come. You want the long version or the short version? I squinted again and ran a hand across the back of my head, instantly wishing I hadn't. I could throw up at any moment, I said, so let's go with the short version. Dylan LaSalle, who's not nearly as dead as we thought he was, clocked you on the head and was about to throw you off the balcony. Well, I'm guessing he was successful with the clocking, I said. But what happened to prevent the second part of his plan? Simple, he said. I shot him. In the ass. And then, for maybe the first time ever, I saw homicide detective Fred Hutton smile. We got an anonymous phone call, homicide detective Fred Hutton said as we were riding down in the elevator. An anonymous call? From whom? I immediately recognized the stupidity of the question. I mean, who, who did they call? I added, quickly hoping to cover the gaffe. 911, a precinct? He shook his head. They called me directly on my cell, which is unlisted. His look suggested that if I had any answers, now would be a good time to offer them up. I did my best to stare back at him blankly, which took no appreciable effort on my part. Detective Wright and I were nearby, he continued, so we went up to the apartment. We heard what was going on through the front door, and since it wasn't closed completely, we pushed open the door and saw Dylan LaSalle swinging a gun at the back of your head. And then you shot Dylan in the ass. I used deadly force to prevent a potentially lethal assault, he said. I fired low to disable the assailant. Well, however you want to put it, thank you. He snorted at this, but I felt the need to continue. We're even now. Homicide detective Fred Hutton turned slowly and looked at me. Excuse me? Well, I know you probably felt bad, you know, 
having an affair with my wife and all, and I just wanted you to know that now we're even. Marks, we were never uneven. Besides, I was just doing my job. I smiled at him and nodded. That's okay. I know you have to say that, but I just want you to know we're square now. We're not square, he said definitively as the elevator came to a stop. The doors opened and he stepped out, turning back to add, If anything, you owe me one. He headed through the lobby toward the front doors, and I followed. The circular driveway in front of the building was buzzing with activity. An ambulance was taking up the most space, with squad cars parked haphazardly around it, while a TV news van had created its own parking spot on the sidewalk. Lights atop the van lit up the driveway, while cars in the adjacent street slowed to get a glimpse and see what the fuss was all about. Dylan was laid out on a stretcher by the back door of the ambulance. He was lying on his side, and I noticed he was handcuffed to the metal frame of the stretcher. It appeared that even with his injuries, he was considered a flight risk. Two EMTs grabbed the side of the stretcher and lifted, sliding it smoothly into the back of the ambulance. One of the EMTs climbed inside while the other headed toward the driver's seat. Before the back door closed, homicide detective Fred Hutton climbed in. I suspected he and Dylan would chat on their way downtown. I started to head to where I had parked my car, but had to detour around one of the police cars. As I passed it, a voice called out to me. Eli? I turned and saw it was Trish. She was seated in the back seat of one of the squad cars. I approached the car, not really sure if you're allowed to talk to someone in the back of a police car. You're in a police car, I said. Yes, she nodded. They've asked me to come downtown and answer some questions. They asked you? After a fashion, she held up her hands, revealing the handcuffs she was wearing. I bet you know how to get out of these things, she said, adding a wicked smile. I looked more closely at the handcuffs and then up at her. I do, I said, but more importantly, I know how not to get into them in the first place. Because you're not a bad boy. Decidedly not. How's your head? I instinctively reached up and touched the knob on the back of my head and then instantly wished I hadn't. It hurts when I touch it. Then don't touch it. Good advice. We looked at each other for a long moment. She once again looked gorgeous to me, but I was surprised to find that I no longer felt in the least bit interested. I'm not sure if that counted as growth, but I was going to take it. What are you thinking? She asked. My head was sore, inside and out. I'm thinking, I said, that I'm really beginning to question my judgment when it comes to women. Oh, I don't know. Your ex-wife seemed nice. Yes, I conceded. She has her days. And that woman we met in the bar, the one whose divorce had just come through. I liked her. Yes, I said. I like her, too. We continued to look at each other. I had no idea what to say in a situation like this. Remember at the reunion, Trish finally said, when I asked you how you did that one trick? I nodded, not really remembering, but as always, wanting to be agreeable. And you said, she continued, that in your experience, people are often let down when they finally find out how a magic trick is done. Yes, that's true, I said. 
She looked over at the ambulance as it pulled out of the driveway, and then she looked up at the apartment building. Finally, she turned back to me. Now you know how the trick was done, she said quietly. Sorry to let you down. I didn't know how to respond, which is just as well, for at that moment, the squad car started up and began to head down the driveway. I watched it go and then turned and looked up the side of the building. I craned my neck, finally spotting the balcony on the 29th floor. I then looked down at my feet and realized that, give or take a foot or two, I was standing exactly where I would have landed. I unconsciously took two steps to the side just to be safe, and then I began walking toward my car. So that ties that up, kind of, but we're not quite to the end of the book. We still have... But it's coming. You can sense that the end is coming, can't you? You sure can. But it's just one more chapter that just does a, a little more tying up of things. And uh, we'll have that next episode, which will then close out season two. And in that episode, we have a surprise guest. Jim and I went back and forth as to whether or not we wanted to talk about it now or surprise you later. And we're excited to tell you now so you don't miss it. It is the one and only Lance Burton. Woo! Uh, he's going to come and talk to us about the movie that he wrote, directed, and starred in called Billy Toppet, Master Magician. It makes sense to talk about a magician making a movie since that's what Eli's been doing for the last 25 chapters. And it's we're just thrilled. I'll just say this out loud for, the, uh, for you uh, and for everybody listening. This has been so much fun for me. Uh, as a performer and a magic fan to get to talk to a whole bunch of people that I absolutely idolize as yeah. magicians and performers. And it's all due to you. So uh, I, I'm just along for the ride. I'm a little fly on the wall. Uh, it, this has been a delight from start to finish. And it does finish really nicely with Lance. He was so yeah. sweet and he's got some great stories. So if you want to get ahead of the game, go to Amazon and um, spend two bucks or whatever it is and watch his movie, Billy Toppet, Master Magician. I'm going to warn you right now, it is a fun family film. It is quite yeah, really silly. It's a goofy movie. He he cops to that immediately. That it uh, they wanted to make a family film and they did. But he also has uh, some fun magic stuff in it and some good stories about how he came out to make it. So that'll be next episode. Before then, uh, be sure to check those show notes for if nothing else, that great David Williamson story about uh, how he pranked Bill Kalush. And also in the show notes, you're going to find some hysterical clips of David Williamson performing. I'll just say this, really worth checking out. Yeah, he's just, he's really fantastic. Worth. So glad you joined us. Anyway, that's it for this episode, episode 223. One more episode and then season two is done. Thanks for listening, everybody. Is it really episode 223? Yes, it's really episode 223. We have one more episode. I'll trust you. Yeah, I can't take you anywhere. It's just... <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.